Welcome to Byteside. I'm Seamus Byrne. This is a show about technology, games, digital culture, all those kinds of nerdy things. And with me, as always, Nick Healy, how are you? I'm very well. I'm very, very well. I am just getting a kick straight into a question for you, something that I okay. just want to follow along on this as long as we can. What's your Quibi count at the moment? How many shows have you watched? <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I have watched, um, I think I can say six episodes of things. Wait, seriously? Um, and that includes four episodes, which I almost feel like you can call it the season um, of uh, the first season of Murder Flip. Murder yeah, House Flip. Murder House Flip, where people actually uh, redo houses that murders have occurred in. Yeah. And... It, it wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be, and actually it was it was brilliant, quite frankly. It, it was awesome. <laughs> um, and one of the really clever tricks here that I think Quibi is pulling off is that that four episodes basically felt like you've watched an episode of a TV show and where they would normally have inserted those three ad breaks, that's your sections. Huh. And thus each episode is roughly six minutes, eight minutes, but I feel confident that that whole four episodes was probably roughly, you know, 23 minutes, what would normally be a broadcast TV episode without any uh, ad, ads in it. Um, but the show was really fun and nice, though the guy who owned the house, he was creepy. <laughs> yeah. But the, the very quick review of Murder House Flip was um, the this old couple, they bought this house, they've had it for many years, um, but yes, it was also the place where this, uh, old serial killer lady, uh, murdered seven people who had stayed at her house as like kind of, you know, drop house type people. And then she killed them and buried them in the yard. And so these people basically helped to freshen up the yard and make it nicer so that it didn't have all those negative connotations. It wasn't that they were flipping the house like they were reselling it. This was a where flipping the feeling of the house for the people who own it and still have those creepy vibes attached to it. Yeah, look, obviously, I mean, how else would you go with something called Murder House Flip? I mean, it's got to be about the vibes. (laughs) (laughs) But look, it was such an easy watch. And it was we actually just watched these last night because um, (laughs) the the genuine story was... (laughs) Uh, my wife had reached for an iPad to, and we were going to watch John Oliver. I think he probably would have been on last night. Um, and the iPad hadn't been recharged. And I went, wait, wait, let's watch some Quippy. <laughs> and we really did enjoy it. Cause at first we were like, look, we'll just watch the first one. And then it got to the end of that first episode. We're like, oh man, we've got to see what they do to the house. <laughs> what format did was you like watch the- it in? Did you flip it? Oh, Did you flip it to see look, how it changed as you, as you moved? I the mean, phone? especially for Murder House Flip, I had to keep flipping. Yeah. So look, the very, f- when I watched the first episode of Survive, because that is one I watched, I really did keep rotating backwards and forwards, trying to get a sense of it. And actually, I think they've done a brilliant job. It is fully edited for both formats. So it's like they've done a complete episode edit for either way. And that means that, like, the shot might even change angle a little bit before or after. Like, so it's not shot for shot flipped 
in either orientation. They've completely edited it for both orientations. And so in that sense, when you rotate it, it just feels seamless because it's not like it is doing some weird, you know, picture bubble where you're worried you're missing part of the frame. Either way you're watching it, you feel like you're seeing what was meant to be in the frame for that shot. So I think that side of it is really clever because it is just kind of, sometimes it is more comfortable to just be holding it in your hand the normal way up. And then other times it is easier to kind of prop it sideways or whatever you might be trying to do. <laughs> well, just a quick update. 1.7 million downloads in its first week. Uh, my oh, understanding wow. is that's about 7% of what Disney Plus saw. But hey, they are very, very different uh, services going for a different yeah. market. It immediately plummeted to, I think, in the bottom 50 or sorry, below the top 50, my mistake, below the top 50 of downloads. I don't know what the spike's going to be like. I, I got to say that after that initial blush, I haven't seen a lot of people talking about it. Yeah. And look, it, there really might be, like we said early on, maybe that whole uh, zero commuting thing has yeah. meant that people have kind of felt less yeah. of that inclination to turn to it because they're not looking to fill less than 10 minutes. They're perfectly fine right now catching full episodes of anything. I tell you what, in two months and two weeks' time, when people find the first uh, payment that they've forgotten about coming out of their account after the 90-day free period, I reckon there might be a few <laughs> cancellations. I reckon that'll be the shock. There'll be a whole lot. Yeah, what? look, I think you're right. What the hell's a quitty? So, <laughs> Let's uh, now you should reset the the clock and we'll check again in a month right. and then see if we've upped our count on the Quibi count. Done, done, <laughs> done. Let's talk about a very different app at the moment. Something the government's been talking about a lot. The idea of a voluntary at the moment tracking app that we would download onto our phones that would help with contact tracing should we end up being infected with corona virus, COVID nineteen. Yeah. I mean, look, as a concept, I completely understand it. I think it is entirely sensible to be exploring it. My reaction so far to the discussion is that, like almost every other time that the government touches technology, they do an awful job of explaining what they're trying to do, and they put the worst possible people in charge of trying to explain what it is they're planning on doing. <laughs> Well, look, the Prime That's Minister... That's my quick summary, but you're over, you're across the news a bit better, so, yeah, fill us in from there. Well, I was about to say, the Prime Minister has actually been giving a chat as we are recording this. He's oh, doing, yeah, He's right. been doing a live chat out of Canberra. It did come up. Here's how he tried to clarify things, and this is a quote. I want to be clear right. about a couple of things. The app only collects data and puts it into an encrypted national store which can only be accessed by the states and territories. The Commonwealth cannot access the data. No Commonwealth agency at the national level, not government services, not Centrelink, not Home Affairs Committee, not the Department of Education, nothing. The Commonwealth will have no access to that data. Does that make you feel better? No. 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 I don't think they addressed anything no. whatsoever. It's like in in so many ways you sort of think, for this to somehow be part of the solution long-term, shouldn't the Commonwealth actually be able to access it so that it's a national database of some kind or that, you know, that it is completely... Yeah, and 
having said those words, I'm like, I don't want that to be a thing. I, th- I find it fascinating that they did at the tech level that they have sort of said they're not working with Apple and Google on the initiative that Apple and Google were trying to work towards, which is creating, you know, a universal, um, API that would work across both platforms mm-hmm. and that would actually all of the information would stay on the device and would only ever be triggered based on, you know, just being able to kind of anonymously ping back through the chain of who has contacted who and then alert somebody if they need to be alerted. But the government's like, no, they want to do it in a different way that does mean that they get to access the information. That's the bit that I'm like going, you don't, all you need to know is that people are being alerted correctly and that someone, maybe someone can display whether or not, you know, where they are in the chain right now. Um, almost sounds like I'm suggesting blockchain. I am not suggesting blockchain, but some people I'm sure will be as we speak. There's people out there saying why blockchain is going to be the best way to do this. Um, but yeah, so look, I feel like there is so much that's just, just. Look, I think what's been interesting to me is I've, I've talked to technologists and I've actually talked to solicitors. We've looked at the legality behind it. Now, do you remember back, of course, when metadata was the big buzzword? We were talking about people being able to track down metadata. We first heard the term scope creep. Do you remember that? Yes. Scope creep. Yes, very clearly. Yeah. Um, because there was even a discussion around that about the, about how it was all being so well locked down and we wouldn't ever have to worry about it because it was only ever be used for the most important crimes in society. And do you remember we then saw a list of all the agencies that applied to have access to collected metadata? And it included, I mean, one of the ones that I remember, it's been burned into my brain, Greyhound Racing Victoria had popped in an application suggesting that they should be allowed to access the metadata, that incredibly important metadata that was only ever going to be accessed by the incredibly important agencies. Now, I'm not suggesting that Greyhound Racing Victoria was granted that, but the fact there was even a process where they could even suggest that they wanted to apply for that does not give me faith. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's that classic issue that, uh, tech security people always talk about, which is once you build the database, it is instantly attractive to anybody who would like to get their hands on that information. And so if you don't have to build the database, don't build the database. <laughs> and there are definitely discussions about the fact that there should be solutions to this that don't require making a centralized database of any kind. It is just about making contact tracing more efficient than it currently is. The idea of then taking more steps to like magically, you know, prevent people from doing some things and not other things based on whether or not they can prove if they're kind of using this app properly or not. Like there's just all these kinds of other things that that in itself is its own scope creep, right? Attached yes. to this idea is what kind of enforcement can slowly be added to it if, you know, as Morrison's kind of habit has been so far, we're saying, look, I just want all Aussies to be good Aussies and Aussie up and do the right Aussie thing. Uh, and then it'd be like, well, Aussies weren't doing the right thing. So now we're going to set more rules. Um, that 
that just kind of keeps feeling like, well, that's surely step two, step three after kind of going, if, if everyone does the right thing and voluntarily installs it, then we won't have a problem. And you're like, if the app is not built the right way, then a lot of people will be well justified in saying, I'd love to participate in appropriate contact tracing, but I do not want to use this app that you have made because it is garbage. It might not even do the job properly. And it's just going to create yet another horrible honeypot of information for some bad actors to want to get their hands on. And that's what it comes down to. You may implicitly trust the government to use the data in the correct way. That is your choice. You could have had amazing experiences with the government, but do you implicitly trust that government to keep that data safe from outside actors? And that is a very different question. Yeah. And look, the one other thing that I think is worth touching on is that idea that like I have a fear that this I've seen like some of the headlines around this. They keep talking about it like it is some kind of panacea to the end game of coronavirus. That like, well, once we've got this app and it's installed widely in the population, we can go back to work. You like contact this is just about better contact tracing. It is not about somehow magically knowing who has it, who doesn't have it. And instantly knowing if someone has has shared it with somebody, like everything about this has been that this virus takes a few days before somebody knows that they've had it, and then in the days preceding, they've infected a bunch of people. And this app does nothing to prevent anybody getting infected. It just helps to inform people more efficiently that they may need to go and get tested. So somehow an app doesn't equal we're all leaving our houses tomorrow. No, it doesn't. It doesn't even come close to that. Contact tracing does need to be refined, as you suggested. I need to see more about this app before I'll agree to it. And I do not think that's a problem. Uh, Again, the other one that keeps coming up over and over again is that classic, if you've done nothing wrong, you've got nothing to be worried about. You know what? Privacy is, it's okay to be concerned about your privacy no matter what the scenario. It is genuinely okay for that. Let's move on. Yeah. Let's move on to something fun. I'll just point out. I'll just point out Stuart Robert, right? A lot of people have been quoted in the media as saying he was put in charge of this because he has an IT background. Hmm. It turns out he ran an IT recruitment company. That is not the same thing as having an IT background, okay? Like a recruitment company is a recruitment company and whatever kind of job you're recruiting for, you don't have to know anything about it. So... This is part of that kind of weird false information that gets a tale. Oh, like there's an expert in charge. Not remotely. Not remotely. Unless they, he's gone and hired five IT experts behind the scenes. Maybe that's what he did. Please tell us. Let them stand up on stage beside him and read out this information on why it's, why it works. But geez, like that's the bit that really gets me is just, stop pretending that you guys know what you're doing. Let the expert get up there like the chief medical officer. Get the chief information officer to stand there and tell us why you're, you're going to work through this and make it good. This Done. Is- <laughs> this is this is the same mentality that has me become default tech support in so many offices because I've heard the term KVM. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I want to talk. You've set up a few in your time. Oh God, don't <laughs> just kill me. Look, let's talk something really, really fun because I have been getting back into digital versions of board games in a really big way. I um I put down the controller on the weekend and I lost a lot of time to Lords of Waterdeep. I'd forgotten just how yes. much fun that is. And there is a particular style a of board game. game. It's a great game. It's not a fun game to set up. It's not a fun game to actually pack away. And I think that's where, and this is what I want to talk about, <laughs> some of these digital board game versions, they strip away all those really complex bits. Like when you're seven rounds in and you go, hang on, for five rounds I'm supposed to have been getting this extra bag of gold because I did this card back then and I keep forgetting to collect it or I forgot what that rule is or when am I allowed to do this? The app's shave off all that, make it all in, built into the gameplay, and it's so much more enjoyable. And I know I'm going to get in trouble from some of the real Cardboard Children fans, and I, I do understand that, that for them there is a joy to the two hours that you spend setting up, uh, what is it, Elder Signs Omens, so that you can try and fight Cthulhu. I lost an entire weekend <laughs> to that game once, and I figured out by the end we were probably playing it wrong anyway. I've got the... <laughs> Fallout board game at home. I love it, apart from the fact that the rules are so wildly opaque. It took me forever to understand exactly how rounds were meant to work. Not helped by the fact that I was trying to play it in solo mode because I kind of got obsessed with solo board games. But I am loving just how many great, great board game apps are available that I can just sit down with a tablet and chill out. Totally. And look, I often find that they're so good at learning a game the first time as well, right? Like Lords of Waterdeep really is a great example. Mm. Where the first time I ever played it, I played it with, you know, I played it around a table with a few mates and it was one of those games where the first game, like by the end of the game, we'd kind of cracked it and then... <laughs> The second game was kind of faster and smoother and everybody kind of had a better idea of what they should be trying to do on the early turns to you know, set themselves up better for the later turns. Um, but then when I got the digital version, it was just so much smoother to uh. be able to, you know, like even having thought I felt I had a handle on it, just by removing the whole issue of am I doing the right thing or not, it's like it won't let you do the wrong thing and therefore you know how to do <laughs> the correct set of options. Like that is so good for learning a game. Um, so, yeah, big fan of that. And like even some of those staples of kind of the modern era of, you know, Ticket to Ride, mm. um, uh, you know, Carcassonne and uh, Catan, all those kind of have really good digital versions um, that do make it easier and, you know, and quite nicely right now do let you play with people remotely through some of those as well. Look, a great analogue version of Catan as well is just smashing your own hand with a hammer repeatedly. It's almost exactly the same effect as trying <laughs> to play that game. Uh, look, ignoring my hatred of Settlers of Catan, what it made me think about is, do you remember about, oh, how long am I going back here, Nick? I don't know, eight years ago or more. There was a real push towards the idea of companion apps. I think 4th edition D&D was trying to push into it. I think they were actually doing CD-ROMs at the time. And it was this idea of a, a digital component that would help you kind of make those first steps. And I always loved the idea. You didn't want to lose that pen and paper feel or that desktop feel, tabletop feel. But it was still nice to have a digital assistant kind of bring you along. No one seems to do the companion app anymore. And I'm just wondering why we lost the idea. 
See, I think I'm 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 trying to look it up right now. I think Betrayal at House on the Hill. I think that actually does have a really good companion app hmm. that that you can download and play with it. And because it's one of those games that sort of on any given game you sort of are shuffling up for a specific scenario that you're going to play through. And the really sort of cool part of that is that then the app will kind of read out the like the the special you know, key parts of what will happen on each round as, you know, as sort of things play out differently given the scenario. Then it will kind of track which scenario you're playing and therefore help to almost be like the dungeon master in a sense, not force one of the players to now and then sort of step into that side role of explaining what's happening next because it's kind of more of a co-op game rather than a, you know, rather than a versus type game um but yeah that has sort of some good stuff but you're right like there's not many that even have that and one other quick one that leaps to mind is actually for um one night uh what is it uh one night ultimate werewolf oh uh, oh. which is just the card game mm. with the kind of like secret information game um that it is brilliant with its app because again instead of having to have one person kind of know how to call out who now opens their eyes and what the order is of kind of opening and closing your eyes and what task each person has to do. The app, you just kind of tap which cards you've kept in or left out for a given round and then you hit play and then it just walks through the whole process beautifully with like mood music and it is totally free to download alongside sort of you know, the game and it covers every expansion set that's come out. So again, that idea of picking out which cards you've used on any given round, that can include any of the expansion cards. Um, and then, yeah, you just kind of put your head down and play the game and it'll start the timer as soon as its eyes open. Um, it's just so clever at helping kind of walk you through that stuff. That one's really great. But apart from those two, um, not many leap to mind for me. I just always think of it because the first time I ever played Pandemic, which is a, a great game and I do love a co-op game rather than a versus game, uh, an oddly apposite game to be playing at the moment as well. But the first time I played Pandemic, it was with someone who was an absolute savant at it, and it made it so simple because he had a great way of explaining whose round it was, what they could be doing. And it was like, that's what I want from a companion app, is just someone who genuinely knows the rules to help nudge yes. you along when you need it. I Maybe it's time to go back to Atmosphere 1991, the VHS horror game. I'm pretty sure that's had a re-release recently. No. I am pretty sure that there is like an app version of atmosphere out there. Uh, I'm going to have to look for it right now. Oh my God. That game was so good. I, yeah, I, I played it in the VHS era. That's how long since I, I only played know it. it as a VHS game. I didn't realize it got updated post. I think, I think they, they did a, um, they did a DVD version, <laughs> which in terms of skipping tracks, I don't quite understand. Yeah. Um, it looks like it might still be available as a DVD version. Fantastic. Oh, 2019. We have the interactive relaunch of the game. Uh, what is it? What is it? Oh, yep. App. Interactive version. Boom. All right. Maybe I'll, <laughs> so I might put that on the list to have a play with. But the other thing I'm going to try and do this weekend, I put it off last weekend. There's a German escape room, which is now offering an 
online virtual escape room experience. So yes, I, gonna, oh yes, I know. I'm going to have a crack at that, and I'll let you know next week how that went. That. That sounds spectacular. And look, one quick nod to, because I just mentioned uh, Haunted House on the Hill or whatever that one's called, Betrayal at House on the Hill, um, is that brilliantly Avalon Hill, they made like a Baldur's Gate version of that at some point recently, oh. um, but they have also just announced there is a Scooby-Doo version coming out. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, yes, that is a perfect tie-in for that game. Hey, while we're talking about updated games... Talk to me about Minecraft. Yes. So this week, it's been teased since late last year that Minecraft, ha- that NVIDIA has been working with Minecraft on creating an RTX version. So RTX being NVIDIA's ray tracing technology that all its kind of newest generation graphics cards have been moving towards. And that's real-time ray tracing rather than you know, ray tracing when it's done for movies or for rendered scenes in you know, video games where they can do all the kind of light bouncing around to get perfect, amazing graphics uh, happening uh, you know, after the fact. Real-time has always been hard, and then sort of, two, you know, I think it's like... Uh, I think it's been about two years since those sorts of cards started coming out. Um, but in a lot of respects, I've found RTX definitely fascinating, really, really important technology for the future of games. But when a lot of games have already been well designed for, for, uh, for, you know, having really clever shaders and all the kinds of things for realistic graphics, um, that sort of flicking the on and off switch for RTX hasn't been all that dramatic. Like it's, it's been really nice. Uh. But not that dramatic. So Minecraft bringing out RTX is amazing. It is like the, it genuinely makes it look like a new game, like a different game that's like Minecraft, except beautiful. <laughs> is that what we were looking for in Minecraft though? See, look, that's a totally valid question. And I think there are a lot of hardcore Minecraft people out there who have for a long time been adding things like Texture packs and shader packs, kind of like I was mentioning for those realistic graphics folks. Mm. Um, a lot of that stuff has been a big part of the mod scene for a long time. Um, so what this is doing is kind of creating this new... So the beta just came out last week. So that's now. Anybody can get on Windows 10, you can download a beta of Minecraft RTX. Obviously, you have to have one of these graphics cards. Um, but yeah, so... The big thing that this is really doing, and it was great. I got to kind of go through a walkthrough with NVIDIA on a call about it um, just before it, it launched the beta, is that for those people who really get into this texture pack stuff, it is essentially adding what was before kind of two, like two parameters on any given block, really. Like what's its texture, what's its color, um, and like, and what kind of, I think maybe opacity, Bits and pieces like that would be sort of the main things that they would be able to change. So now what they can do now with defining textures in Minecraft is actually things like how much light does a given block emit? So they can now kind of define how bright or even if it's a dim light, you know, how much light will actually be emitted by a block. But then also things like how how translucent is it? But even like refractive index and stuff like this. So then it's like this really powerful RTX stuff is able to 
bring all of that into, okay, light is bouncing around this room, and now let's define how that light hits everything. And it is amazing that there's also, like I've seen a great demo walkthrough where someone's pointing out things like, un until now there's only been one color of light in Minecraft. Mm. And for someone who's creating like an adventure mode um, server or they're creating some kind of, you know, um, special kind of pack that they let people to download to kind of challenge them at things. You can now have like pools of light falling into a room to kind of dramatically light up something or it might even be, of course, as the day progresses in the game, that pool of light is going to move. There could be clues somewhere else that sort of say at this moment in, you know, at this time you need to look in this place and then it will be revealed, you know, all these kinds of things. They can even potentially start to use triggers of, you know, needing to kind of know, um, you know, if you combine two different light sources and make them kind of bounce through another glass block, that that will then create the beam you need to kind of trigger, a, you know, a button at the far end of some hallway. Like, there's all this kind of crazy stuff that can now start to become part of that sort of next generation of Minecraft building um, that does mean it's like it looks amazing. And look, I, I had the kids kind of having a first little start of playing with it. Um, they it blew their mind. I loved that my son was super skeptical at first. Then he saw it and went, oh, oh. <laughs> um, but it's, I think plenty of people are just going to be able to keep going about their business, enjoying Minecraft as it exists. I, I feel like in a way that, you know, a lot of games, it's, a, it's you know, it is, a game that's been around for a long time now. It does keep getting really cool updates, though. Um, but I think, you know, for that idea of going the next 10 years of Minecraft, this sort of does set up a really cool kind of new new sort of second road, in a sense, because I think they won't want to take away, because, of course, this won't run on an old computer. It has to have one of these uh, new graphics cards. Uh, <laughs> so I think you'll still have kind of basic Minecraft for people who just want to keep playing it how, how they've always played it. But it does open up new possibilities for people. And it is really is one of the best demonstrations I've seen for how real-time ray tracing can actually work and how it makes things look better, which is kind of fascinating that Minecraft has jumped out to be the game that seems to have proved that better. Look, I definitely hadn't considered the building aspect of it when I'd first been reading about that. And I can see what you mean, that the the extra level of detail completely changes that creation. I was thinking of it as purely from a visual aesthetic point of view, but there's two different ways of looking at that. And I love the idea that it does provide that extra layer. Yeah, and it's funny that actually the PR sent through some info where they basically flagged how to kind of get like the right level of smoke in an environment to get Ooh. the cool screenshots Ooh. that like that they were getting. So it's it's kind of interesting that there's even these kinds of extra things where suddenly it's like, oh, you can you can kind of input commands that will then essentially tell the game what the air quality should be because that is going to play a role in how light moves through a space. Um, so like all these kinds of clever little details that it really does sort of point to, you know, that just a, a new potential for what is in that game. But I think the really most importantly for me, I feel like it's cool that compared to like the Call of Duties of the world and all the like really high-end graphics games out there that the simplicity of Minecraft 
and then combined with with letting light bounce in a natural way around a space and interact with objects in all these kinds of very real-world physics kind of ways actually seems to end up demonstrating it really well. There's like a button you can press on the keyboard. You just literally hit semicolon and it turns RTX on and off. So you can kind of flip that switch. And it is fascinating to kind of walk around a space and go, oh, yep, this is what it would look like if they hadn't redefined the world with all these kind of extra details. And like there's a neon city in you know, one of the demo worlds that they've created. And in that one, it's like all these blocks emit light that normally wouldn't do that. And so when you kind of turn it off, you're like, oh, yeah, they look like the normal huh. blocks that they would otherwise be. But now that they've been able to be defined as light sources, suddenly like this whole thing is a completely different experience. Well, look, as with all things Minecraft related, I look forward to seeing what people can create out of it because, exactly. boy, oh, boy, it encourages people. Hey, just a quick one before we roll out. 40 years of Pac-Man. Can you believe four decades this year for Pac-Man? Four zero. Four zero. 1980. <laughs> that is amazing. That really is amazing. Wow. Now, look, yeah. I, I'd totally forgotten. I got this, and I, not, I'm not trying to name and shame here, but it was through a press release for a line of budget clothing themed around Pac-Man, <laughs> letting me know, <laughs> like, if I needed a Pac-Man onesie, it is 40 years of Pac-Man. I'm like, what? What? And I've got to say, I'm absolutely loving some of these Pac-Man outfits, including the uh, cosy sleepwear jumper that reads, Mum's Got Game. Um, I'm not really sure whether <laughs> angling any of this, but I was just thinking of the legacy of that, because 40 years, I was six when that came out, and I remember two kind of time periods of Pac-Man. I remember actually playing it. It was never the arcade version when I was a kid, the, the stand-up arcade. It was always the tabletop version. I remember yeah. playing that as a kid. And then I remember when it was cool to have them in the, you know, kind of groovy pubs and play them again as an adult. And there were those kind of two time periods where Pac-Man was really hot action. Yeah. And look, I mean, it really is part of that first wave where – the music, like the the sounds that that machine would make were just glorious. <laughs> you know, like the attract screen stuff, right? You know, just ah. that, these, that whole idea that these games kind of in that era, they kind of needed to be trying to call out to you and encourage you to come over and put in your coins. Um, it was just so cool. And like the, you know, that like the in-between music between rounds, that like, it's like, they really did so much with these tiny circuit boards that hold so little information um, that, you know, it's one of those things why I think it makes sense why both not just the retro fandom for people who love kind of classic games just because of, I guess, you know, that there's just something different about sort of playing those kinds of games, but also people who challenge themselves to write write games today for like Commodore 64 and for some of those kind of older systems um, because it's like it's such a challenge to get so much out of so little coding um, that, yeah, Pac-Man always jumps out. The big story that I always loved was when uh, you've seen King of Kong, oh, classic yeah. documentary. Um, so Billy Mitchell, uh, before I knew him as the, uh, the pseudo villain he was turned into for that uh, documentary. God, he was good as a villain. He was. Uh, um, that he uh, heard at one point that there was some Canadian kind of retro 
game tournament happening in Canada and like a couple of Canadian teenagers were, were racing to be the first to get a perfect score on Pac-Man. So that's the idea where, you know, you never lose a life. You eat every, um, every piece of fruit and you kill every ghost on every power pellet. What? Like nuts. <laughs> and that's through 255 screens before you get to the kill screen. So like insane. No one had ever done it. And so apparently these, you know, people had decided we're going to do it. And he and some other buddy went like, if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be an American. Yeah. <laughs> Such a Billy Mitchell vibe. I can feel it. <laughs> but yeah, so they decided to go and go to this event and, and try as well. And he did end up achieving it that weekend. So you're like, man, I, you know, you got to give him credit when he's someone who actually can, can back up the talk sometimes. But he, uh, during that attempt, about apparently six hours in, somebody kicked out a cable. No. No. <laughs> To start again, and you're like, oh my god, how do you not just murder that person, whoever it was? How do you not get up and just kill them after playing that long to try to get this perfect game? Um, so yeah, I like, but I love that again, that idea that, and this was like late 90s, so that was almost 20 years before someone ever played a perfect game of Pac Man. I mean, it is insane to think about things like that that a game was so hard to play perfectly that it took that long and look there are so many games you could like go back and look at the legacy of but i think from a a pure cultural phenomenon pac-man really owns absolutely shall we wrap it up shall we do this again next week yes yes um, this weekend, I just want to give a quick shout out that there is a, one of those Fortnite live concert events coming up. Ah. So rather than talk about it after the fact, I think it's great to point out that it's happening. First time, first one is scheduled like Friday morning local time. And then there's like a bunch of different time slots. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but the marshmallow event last year was amazing. And it's like, it's a free game. You really can just download it. We're all desperate for concert experiences right now. <laughs> and the Marshmallow concert last year genuinely felt like going to a festival and feeling part of something special. But think of it as like a festival where during a song, you know, you could suddenly fly in the air because that suited the moment in the song when suddenly it just triggers letting everybody fly. Um, amazing stuff. I'm sure they will have tried to outdo themselves on last year. The artist this time is Travis Scott, who's like a really big deal at the moment. Um, and yeah, they've called it astronomical. So, and apparently at the moment in the game, like there's this weird kind of like bubble that's like coming towards the earth from space at the moment. And you, if you look in its direction, you can like vaguely hear music, like this kind of cool stuff that this game does to build up to something like this. So that then at the end of the week, like this thing is going to suddenly be like, bam, now it's happening. And at these specific times you can go and participate. And I feel like they're going to blow last year's stats out of the water, just given how over the top, you know, like people knew, heard about that one after the fact have probably watched the YouTube videos. And now it's like, Hey, you're stuck at home anyway. Download Fortnite. Go and join in on one of these concerts, and then we can all talk about how awesome it was later. Well, let's talk about it next week. Let's do it. I yes. So I should finish wrapping up then. Thanks, Nick, for coming by. I'm so good at this show. Um, 
why don't you tell us where people can find you apart from, of course, tuning into Western Plains ABC? You can do that. Uh, and you can do that via the ABC Live, oh, sorry, ABC Listen app. But you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Nick. It is DR underscore NIC or I'm on Facebook, Nick Healy. And I'm at Seamus on Twitter, um, at Biteside, of course, is where you'll find all the Biteside stuff. Um, we don't always tweet it out, though, so go to Biteside.com and you'll definitely find all the stuff. I'm ramping up Biteside on Instagram at the moment. I've Ooh. set up one of those really good things where I can put the link in bio stuff on there. Um, so using it a lot to kind of share cool stuff that... I don't have time to write articles about, but I do just want to share with the community. So that's genuinely ramping up. So go and follow at the bite side on Instagram or follow slash bite side on Facebook. Email us. Tell us what you think, what you'd like to hear more about. Ask at biteside.com. And until next time, I guess we'll see you then. You take care, Nick. Bye. Bye.